ladies and gentlemen, I think we're just about ready to start again. I hope everyone's enjoyed lunch today. It's a little bit crowded in here, but uh, thanks for your patience. Um, what I'm going to do now is ask Alison Hills to join me and uh, for some readings. Alison Hills. Good afternoon everyone, it's great to be here at Brooklands today and I really enjoyed your talk Helen, so it's a, I know a lot more about that side of it now. Um, I'm actually Alison Hill, so I just wanted to not rhyme with Mills, but, yeah, <laughs> but that's fine. I get a bit mixed. <laughs> it sort of works. So, as I say, it's great to be here. Um, my interest, I'm a, I'm a poet first and foremost, but my interest in the Second World War ferry pilots was when, strangely, I was in the Hampton Court Emporium and came across a pristine copy of Giles Whipple's um, Spitfire Women in the Second World War. And like many people that I subsequently spoke to, um, I knew nothing or very little of the role of the women during the war. And this is a brilliant overview, if you ever read it, um, a raw snapshot of lots of the women, 164 women. Uh, I tried to put them all in the poetry collection, but of course there weren't really that many pages, so I put in as many people as I could. And I wanted to capture their stories um, between the lines and between the flights. Um, so I've divided the book into five sections, chronologically, um, and the first section, Private Lives, deals with their lives before the war, leading up to the war. Um, so I thought I'd start, I was going to say a word about the ATA. I'm sure many of you know perhaps a little bit about the ATA, but it's a civilian organisation set up at the outbreak of the war to ferry planes, RAF planes, from um, factories to front line. Um, and as I said, civilian, mostly men, but became, uh, the women joined um, under the influence of Pauline Gower, who led the women's section. Very controversial, women hadn't even been allowed to step into RAF planes, let alone fly them. So, as you can imagine, there was a huge press interest. And many of those wonderful headlines made it into the poems. Um, so I'll come to those in a little while. And women pilots also achieved equal, equal pay in 1943, which is the first time that it happened. And again, that was down to Pauline's influence. They didn't use radio or instruments, so they were at the mercy of the British weather, which was apt to change very quickly, and enemy aircraft. So the many books that I've read, there were some really amazing accounts of mid-air dramas and like, very lucky escapes. But all the pilots agreed that there was a spitfire that was the real thing. Joy Lofthouse said, to sit in the cockpit of a spitfire Barely wider than one's shoulders, with the power of the Merlin at one's fingertips, was a poetry of its own. While Jackie Mogridge also waxed lyrical, a few seconds later, I found myself soaring through the air in a machine that made poetry of flight. As Melody knows here, in Tunbridge Wells Library, there are 30 scrapbooks donated um, by Pauline's um, father, MP, Sir Robert Gower. And his three key interests, as I found, going through the scrapbooks, scrapbooks that were actually that thick, were politics, preventing cruelty to animals, and his daughter's illustrious flying career. I'm not sure which order, but there were lots of, lots of cuttings about Pauline. So in this first poem, we get an insight into Pauline's school days. Carefully marked, where's the page? Okay. So here's the first poem. A Trail of Oranges, for Pauline Gower and her school friend. She climbed every tree in the grounds and leapt from every dormitory window. 
the scent of oranges hidden beneath bloomers, recalling a stolen afternoon up and over the high school walls towards a delicious taste of freedom. Shaking off regulations, balancing curls heralding friendship and laughter, a pair on the cusp of just around the corner. Strolling through the market, selecting their fare, the afternoon languished ahead. Yet the chime of the church clock conjured nuns' impatience, the sharp tang of incense. Leaping back over the wall straight to chapel, Pauline was mortified to find her elastic give, half turning to spot a steady trail of oranges rolling down the aisle. One came to rest beside Sister Agatha's shoe. She declined to notice. And this next poem, um, I was very lucky enough to know very well Lady, um, lots of different connections, but she actually happened to meet Monique Algazarian on a coach in the 90s, going to France to look at a sculpture that my friend had designed um, for the RAF. So she was able to give me over several conversations and meetings, details that went into this poem. Model pilot, model lawn. The Sacred Heart Sisters found her a delightful child, but very pleasure-loving. Peter Pan inspired dreams of flying, lent her silver-tipped wings. Her passion for planes began in the back garden, in an old Sopwith pup her mother found at auction. Monique and her brothers happily flew the world. From volunteer nurse to ferry pilot, Monique stood taller for the ATA, borrowing an inch or two for her medical flying spitfires with ease. She ferried cigarettes once or twice too, stashed in an overnight bag or down by her parachute, a welcome favour for those waiting to fly. Long after the war, she manicured her window box with nail scissors, a friend's flight of fancy adding a miniature blue spitfire into the grass. She'd flown all types of frontliners in the war, yet did not take a coach trip until May 1991. Why be driven when you can fly? Monique wanted the sound of a Merlin engine at her funeral, arriving, passing, fading, lingering essence of her energy, her vibrant life. And just one more from this section. Um, I'll read a little bit about the pilot first. Mary de Bunsen's heart was a rather odd shape for a mosquito pilot and she suffered from childhood polio and poor sight. She hummed bark fugues as she ferried spitfires. Flying was her passion. She also lived very close to Thomas Hardy. Taking tea with Thomas Hardy. I was shy, but it wasn't as bad as matchmaking. I like to think I had some literary credentials. And Thomas didn't mind a, a fig if I was near blind or lame. I was just a young girl perched on a tapestry wingback. But I could sense he was trying hard to remember my name and how I fitted into his landscape. I tried to imagine his books, his desk, his pen, hoping I may inspire a line or two, the angle of my cheek or my face in repose. Before I found planes, I dived into books, hid deep beneath their pages, as later I skimmed the feathered clouds in my solo in my cirrus moth. She really did have two twin sort of disabilities that she flew throughout the war. 
I'm coming to Diana Bonato, um, probably a familiar face at Brooklands in the 30s, who soloed after six hours from Brooklands, but on her first solo flight, um, a badly burnt pilot flung himself literally on the plane and said, instead, and she wrote a poem about it herself afterwards, don't fly, don't fly miss, look and see what aviation's done to me. I scanned his scarred and broken face and horror shuddered in my mind what flying now could do to me. Yet throughout the war and throughout her flying career she fancied him as a guardian angel and whenever she had, and she had many mid-grade dramas, mid-air dramas, she thought he would save her. So I dedicated a, a sequence in the book, Diana's Nine Lives. I'd just like to read three of those. She has an excellent biography if you ever read it. Um, Spreading My Wings, um, which is here behind me. And it's written in a sort of rather breathless but very forthright style, which I imagine was her character. She always wore lipstick as well throughout. The powder puff moment. I tried a roll in the Spitfire, but somehow got stuck upside down at 5,000 feet. And out flew that silver compact from my top pocket, showering the cockpit, the controls, the pilot. The striking flight lieutenant striding towards me stopped short in his tracks. I was not the girl he was expecting just a powder puff clown. He turned on his heels and strode off. Cushions to clear a windsock. My first Hampton, Hampton was unforgettable. It was a plane for long-legged pilots, not little old me. For once, the flight crew were unhelped with no cushions. If only they could have seen me dicing with death. I wedged my jacket, parachute and logbooks behind me, but the G-force whipped the throttle lever out of reach. I missed the incoming windsock with inches to spare. And finally, from that one. Uh, a wing and a prayer. Sun to cloud is another one of those days. I was enjoying the Spitfire with the Cotswolds safely behind me when we struck cloud. Max and Billy's recent lessons swam through my head, if in doubt, bail out. But I was wearing a skirt and couldn't sail down in a parachute, showing off my hitched up navy surge. My landing was memorable, my knees collapsed. I mentioned the headlines, and I'm just going to read a couple from that section. One particular pilot was immortalised on the cover of Picture Post, the cover girl. Maureen Dunlop was caught on the cover of Picture Post, stepping fresh from a plane. A breeze ruffling her curls, she graced every breakfast table, set many hearts aflame. It was a perfect press moment, unscripted, and they knew it. She was forever that girl from the plane, one hand to her hair, cap and goggles in the other, an image of carefree glamour. She told the photographer she was busy, had a barracuda to put away, but then smoothed her hair, smiled as the sun flared her youth, her golden bracelet. And there she was, cover girl. <coughs> Press did obviously sometimes get a little bit confused, some slight confusion. Their hands may be small and their voices soft, yet the 25 ATA women pilots might easily be men, declared the evening news, February 1941. They were all in it together. Same uniforms, same hours, same regulations, and at first, less pay. Yet Rosemary Reese, <coughs> one of the fated first eight, saw it as an appalling burden of responsibility. 
flying anything to anywhere alongside the men with huge pressure from press and public. They had to show what they were made of every flight, every day. Nothing less would do. And a few of the daily um, concerns, really, of the women flying throughout the war was the weather, which was crucial, um, overnight trains, and chocolate. So just a couple of poems about those things. Four miles to the inch. Vital knowledge for visual contact. Following railway lines, a pilot's best friend. Clumps of trees, they don't move. Or finding familiar spires to mark landing strips. Check in with the net. Check your map tucked into your boots for easy access. Never mark barrage balloons. Never write anything of interest to enemy eyes. Develop a passion for maps. A knowledge of the country's many towns and hills, in particular hills. Maps imprinted on the mind, keeping the ground in sight. Maps that float into dreams, disturb your sleep. This title, Chips, in the title is the flying papers that the women had to um, deliver or had to um, collect and deliver with each plane. Chips for chocolate. We collected our chips each morning from a polished wooden shelf. The thrill of a new plane would often keep us going. Yet it was decided we needed a little more for safe energy levels. So when we returned our chips, we got a two-ounce bar of Cadbury's dairy milk. One pilot, it may have been Jackie, used hers to send love letters. She'd wrap them in a note and drop them from her Spitfire. The finder was to keep the chocolate in return for delivering the letter. It was such small things that kept us going sometimes. It really was. A couple of times, well, several times in my research, I came across accounts of where the ground crew had stood mystified looking for the pilots um, when particular small female forms came towards them. And this one is sort of preempting melody in her next talk, but it's um, for First Officer Mary Wilkins Ellis. I am the pilot. One Wellington bomber safely delivered, the ground crew stood waiting for the plane. Pilot. Mary Wilkins Ellis, petite, but more than capable of flying military aircraft at more than 300 knots, had delivered it solo. In combat, the RAF used a Crow 6, the navigator, an engineer. She climbed through the hatch with a parachute, surprised by their incredulous looks, and by the one who climbed back in to double check. I am the pilot, she said. Here's your plane. And First Officer Mary Wilkins Ellis, as we'll hear in a minute, delivered 400 Spitfires for the ATA, flew 76 type of planes and 1,000 aircraft overall. That magnificent woman, once doubled as Lady Penelope, flying a Tiger Moth under a motorway bridge, landing in court on seven separate charges. She also flew a Demoiselle replica, starring in a film about magnificent men, with many flying hours under her wartime belt. She once delivered a Halifax to Hamble, Dumping a parachute outside the control room, she went to hand in her chit. The duty pilot moved his gum from cheek to cheek and asked for the pilot to sign in. I am the pilot, she said. Here's your plane. And Joan Hughes, MBE, 
flew for almost 50 years. She retired in 1985 with 11,800 hours in her logbook and two films to her name. And there is a, a male pilot featured in this book. Um, I was very lucky to meet, very privileged. And the type is taken from a line he used quite continuing in our conversation. And he was actually really pleased to share these memories and know that also there were going to be poems about some of the women who delivered his planes. One fine day, I'd been told my first spit was waiting at the airfield. It was a day we all looked forward to amid the sorties, the bombs, the long days and the darkest of nights. So one fine day I went to collect it, watched as it taxied towards me, sun gilding its wings, catching it just so. There I was, my first spit, and out stepped the pilot, but would you believe, just a slip of a girl. There I was, put firmly in my place, but glad she'd ferried it my way, glad to slip into her seat, to climb and dive like a bird set free on that vivid, virgin flight. And I did ask Ralph if he'd like his name in that, but he didn't, modest, he didn't want his name on the poem. I'm going to read a poem now that I read um, outside a, in the hurricane in the hangar, which is a very interesting and most memorable place I've read so far. And it's celebrating Brooklyn's. It was written um, a couple of years ago on the balcony um, from the clubhouse. Brooklyn's Swing. They're in the mood, swirling the dance floor, hands skimming hips, scarlet lipstick glossing, all eyelinered nylons and vintage chic. They're hovering at the stalls, clustering rails, rummaging period pieces, yellowing maps, offering up roads still to travel. From the clubhouse balcony, classic cars slip into easy mono as Diana walks by. Lettuce strides the other way, ready for the sky. Spring sunlight dances back into Brooklyn's crowds lap nostalgia, the glitz and glamour of bygone days, cheering races, applauding flights. And the final section of the book, Leaving Legacies, um, as it suggests, um, commemorates some of the women who did lose their lives, and also it's, it looks at the women left behind. I mentioned Diana on the front, and she also comes into this poem in a different way. On a salmon's pale blue shirt, hung in Diana's wardrobe for nearly 50 years, brushing against her sway of silk dresses. Poignant memories of a pilot who helped a novice before floundering on high ground, caught in English weather, almost home. The pale blue wool was soft at the touch, much softer than ATA issue and fitted Diana perfectly. Her family had wanted her things to be shared. She burst into tears the only time she tried it on, alone in her digs. Honor's blue-gray eyes twinkled back from the mirror. It was too much. She remembered with pride the young first officer who befriended her, taking it down now and again, shaking out the clouds, before slipping it back between shot silk blues. Honor's presence lingering, her kindly words drifting down the decades. Operations Alison King, who's based at the one of the Orland Ferry Corps, um, had a really important job. And 
just wanted to recognise that in this poem. Moving up the blackboard. The call came, the one we all dreaded, when her voice would change, her eyes take on that strained, faraway look. She'd carefully cover the mouthpiece, nod over in my direction, and I'd lower my eyes, try to stop my stomach falling. Another one down, details as yet unknown. Other lives and histories would be forever changed at their loss. That we knew. But for now, we had to log the details, find a way to move on through the war, to keep doing our bits up in the skies. Even before she'd replaced the receiver, I'd wiped the blackboard, filled in any gaps. It was good for morale. It had to be done. And I'd just like to read, I mentioned Pauline Gower wrote poems. Um, she wrote a collection back in 1934, Piffling Poems for Pilots, which is brilliant, it's really lovely. And which leads on nicely to 50 Ways to Fly, which is a book we've just produced um, in support of the British Women Pilots Association, which was set up 10 years after the war by some of the women pilots. So all proceeds go to that. Um, the organisation encourages girls to fly, to take up engineering and to think about careers in aviation, which isn't always encouraged at primary school, so it's a really important organisation. And I've featured over 45 poets in here, and really delighted that I was able to include two ATA pilots. Um, one, Pauline Gower, uh, she died actually two days after having twins, really sadly, very young. Um, but her son is still alive and lives in Australia, and was really delighted that this poem could be reproduced and going out to new audiences. And the other poem is from Jackie Mogridge, who was, um, the poem was only found very recently in her daughter's attic, so it's very exciting to produce and publish both of those. So I'll read firstly my own poem in there, which is about Jackie Mogridge, Remembering Jackie. Jackie danced with the wind. She flew by the seat of her skirt, raised on a cushion, head in the clouds. She loved to watch the sun appear, crave peace and solitude the sheer delight of soaring free. Jackie showed her daughters petals unfurling, dew glistening on grass, rain splash on yellow roses. They billowed under duvets, learning how to fly. Jackie relaxed into headstands at Hamble or turned her morning somersaults, somersaults, dark eyes shining. She pushed boundaries with a tilt of her chin, longed to break a sound barrier, flew spitfires to Burma. Captain Jackie was proud of her post-war wings, paving the way for women with a blazing spitfire trail. And just to finish, thank you all very much for reading, and thanks to Steve for inviting me here tonight today. Um, just the two poems from these 88 pilots, Pauline Gower first. Ten little aeroplanes. Ten little aeroplanes taking off in line. One did a somersault, then there were nine. Nine little aeroplanes going for a flight. One got left behind, then there were eight. Eight little aeroplanes so near to heaven, one flew into clouds, and then there were seven. Seven little aeroplanes going through their tricks. One did the wrong one, and then there were six. Six little aeroplanes in a nosedive. One hit a treetop, and then there were five. Five little aeroplanes, watch how they soar. One lost its airspeed, and then there were four. You can see how this is going. <laughs> Four little aeroplanes, wonderful to see. One got wing flutter, and then there were three. Three little aeroplanes flying in the blue. 
One stalled on a turn, and then there were two. Two little aeroplanes playing in the sun. One got a heat stroke, and then there was one. One little aeroplane looping for fun. Pilot pulled the wings off, and then there was none. <laughs> and I'm really pleased that I think that might be going into school, so I think it'd be a brilliant poem to, to carry on that legacy, really. And this last poem is written by Jackie Mogridge, as I say, only recently discovered in an attic. Um, her daughter's delighted that it's also seeing the light of day. It's called The Last Flight. When I must set the compass for my flight, the last and all alone, which bearing is the best all through the night to reach the great unknown? Will wind allow us matter in the void through which I have to go? Or navigation error be allowed with faults? I do not know. How can I tell the distance and the time or weather on the way? Or estimate the height I have to climb until I land some day? Pray that the master pilot of us all will check my course to steer and not allow my wavering wings to stall when I take off from here. Jackie Mogridge.